Welcome to Rave Dad's Diary, the show that explores the globalization of electronic dance music from the perspective of a rural Alberta boy turned raver. I'm your host and resident rave dad, Paul Brooks. Rave Dad's Diary broadcasts on CJSW 90.9 FM in Calgary at the University of Calgary campus and community radio station located on Treaty 7 land. I acknowledge the traditional territories of the people of the Treaty 7 region in southern Alberta, which includes the Blackfoot Confederacy, the Siksika, the Pagani, and Kaina First Nations, the Sutina First Nation, and the Stony Nakoda. The city of Calgary is also home to Métis Nation of Alberta, Region 3. Welcome to Episode 10. Today, I check in with three industry pros who are honing new skills in lockdown. We'll hear from DJ Ali B, who's turned to casting bronze sculptures. Booking agent Grant Paley is learning the ins and outs of Twitch and monetizing live streams. And Sandro Petrello is making bars of soap. But first, you're going to hear some Canadian synthwave music compiled by Sarah McKenzie in Montreal. I'll be taking a couple of weeks off over the holidays, so it's the perfect time for you to catch up on the series. Stream past episodes on cjsw.com and Apple Podcasts. And don't forget to visit the Rave Dad's Diary website to find photos and links from the show. You can find that at pbrooks.ca slash ravedadsdiary. That's pbrooks.ca slash ravedadsdiary. My favorite thing about this radio project is that it gives me the excuse to reach out to friends and people working in the music industry that I admire. I'm hanging out with one of those people right now. Sarah McKenzie is a journalist and a filmmaker based in Montreal. She's put together a collection of Canadian synthwave for us to enjoy. Hi, Sarah. Hi, Paul. Thank you for having me. Okay, so this mix is... Super fun, and it makes me want to learn more about the Canadian subcultures that these sounds came from. How did you get into this kind of music? Good question. So uh, when I was in university, I worked at a record store in Montreal called Cheap Thrills, and it's a bit of an institution here. It's been around since 1971. Uh, and the store is known for, uh, a lot of different genres, but notably post-punk, uh, metal, industrial, experimental, uh, but really it was through, um, those genres that I came across music that was infused, uh, with synths. And, uh, since then it sort of became a, uh, a love affair that <laughs> that keeps going um and i just sort of fell in love with with synth pop and new wave as a result 
Is there a, a story that you're trying to tell with this mix of music you've put together? So originally when, uh, when we were talking about creating this sort of collection of Canadian synth pop and new wave, I had it mapped out in my mind that I would want it to structure everything chronologically. And so starting from the early 80s, going up to uh, 2020. But when I started creating the mix, um, I decided to sort of ditch that type of structure because I felt like the songs are just so fun that it's it's better to just let everything flow loosely. Uh, that said, what I will say is that um, I did a lot of research and digging uh, across the country. So what the mix does have, uh, it, it is a very nice set of, of music from... Uh, bands and musicians coming out from Vancouver, Montreal, Toronto. And I find that each location has a sort of different sound. So Vancouver uh, feels a lot punkier, if that's a word. Uh, Montreal uh, being this sort of free, liberated, hippie city, uh, you can hear a lot more disco uh, in these in these tracks. So Every different location has a different sound. So I would say it's not chronological, but uh, it does sort of take you on a tour <laughs> of what the country has to offer or has had to offer over the years in that world. There's a lot of French lyrics that I don't understand. <laughs> is there is there a, a lyrical nugget in one of those songs that, that stands out for you? Yes. Yeah, so... Um, I'm from Montreal and I am bilingual, so I can actually understand all of the French lyrics. And for me, I thought that going into diving deep into these into these songs uh, that I had never listened to uh, was actually a really interesting experience because of of, of the lyrics themselves. Uh, a couple of songs on the mix. Uh, offer interesting uh insight into what it was like to make this type of music back then uh one is called uh vivre sur video by a french act called trans x from the 80s and uh i'm learning too that a lot of uh kind of new wave synth pop songs from that era in quebec were released in with lyrics in both languages but quite often uh, the French uh, lyric versions were, were favorited. And I think that's sort of organic because they're originally written in French. So that would make sense. But I just thought that's kind of funny because that would never happen in 2020 with any other genre in Quebec. Uh, but uh, one of the most peculiar and uh, amusing tracks in this mix is called Monsieur Montréal and it is by an artist called uh, Marc Drouin. It is échalote and échalote means shallots in English. So uh, very questionable name. <laughs> uh, and um, it's just this like perfectly adorably cheesy uh, disco infused synth pop track uh and he basically keeps repeating in the lyrics that he wants to dance until his muscles pop off so overall <laughs> 10 on 10 great energy coming from that song uh but yeah as i mentioned you definitely do 
you do you do feel a different type of of vibe and a different type of uh, musicality coming out of these tracks from Quebec specifically. I appreciate that you included some Alberta acts in this mix. Tell me about how Ohama fits into the scene. Synth pop usually feels like something that belongs um, in the city because it feels very industrial, uh, especially, you know, in the 80s and 90s, using synths was sort of cutting edge. Uh, But there's this one artist named Oihama who uh, is from rural Alberta and grew up on a potato farm. True story. Uh, And he's been making this crazy uh, synth-heavy electronic music. And uh, this mix and the story of of this genre in Canada would be incomplete without nodding to him. And um, the one song that I did include by him on the mix is called I Fear... Uh, Oh, no, sorry. It's from his album, I Fear What I Might Hear. And um, the song is called Where Do You Call Home? And he's basically, he's asking listeners sort of aimlessly uh, where they live and where do they call home while also offering his own sort of answer to this question, saying on a potato farm, (laughs) which is really great. So, um, yeah, I would definitely check out check out more of this stuff. And he records everything himself too. He has, a, he has a really amazing story. I understand one can go down quite a YouTube rabbit hole if they start looking up this music. Yeah, so focusing more on um, the tracks that were released more and sort of like the 80s, 90s, music videos uh, were more of a phenomenon at that stage. And especially for Canadian acts who are more, uh, let's say, underground or more or less known, uh, it was more of a rarity. However, uh, I will say that there are some pretty fantastic music videos out there on YouTube that accompany some of these tracks that I found. Uh, And I would highly recommend you check them out after you listen to this mix. Specifically, my favorite is the video... um, for uh, The Saint Became a Lush, which is by a band named Psyche from Edmonton. And uh, without giving too much away, there's basically this interesting, um, yeah, like devilish uh, meets Kermit the Frog haunted house aesthetic (laughs) unraveling. Uh, You have piqued my interest. (laughs) yes exactly it's a must watch and it's on youtube you love telling musical stories and you're working on a film project right now that involves music can can you tell me about that yeah so uh this is actually a very exciting time for me because i'm uh working on my first film and um As you mentioned, I'm really interested in music and stories. And so this uh, piece is actually documentary on uh, music and AI. So without going too much into detail quite yet, because I am in the development phase, uh, I'm very excited. And it does center quite a bit around electronic music, because that is uh, a genre of music that we're seeing 
the most sort of utilized within that realm of technology. So some pretty crazy stuff going on out there in the world of AI music. So stay tuned.
You're listening to Rave Dad's Diary on 90.9 FM CJSW, broadcasting on Treaty 7 land from the University of Calgary. I'm Paul Brooks, and we just heard a collection of synthwave and new wave music compiled by journalist and filmmaker Sarah McKenzie. Sarah's really cool. Check out her personal website, smckenzie.ca, to learn more about what she's working on and to find links to her socials. Up next, we're going to hear a clip from my conversation with British DJ and producer Allie B. In episode 8 of Rave Dad's Diary, I spoke with Allie B about the early days of Shambhala Music Festival. During that call, we also spoke about Allie's burgeoning art career. 
Check out his Instagram, DJ underscore Ali underscore B, to get a taste of his visual art and to see the clock tower in London he calls a studio. I was just talking to Andrea Graham um, on the phone, actually, and I told her that I was going to speak with you. And she told me that you live a, or have a studio in a clock tower. Uh, yeah, I do. <laughs> yeah. Um, I, yeah. In London, I, I bought a, a clock tower about uh, 10, 15 years ago. Um, well, I bought an apartment and it's in an old fire station with a giant clock tower on it. And then I, I bought the clock tower as well. And I'm, I'm kind of in the middle of Well, I use it as a studio, essentially. Um, and I'm, yeah, that's, yeah, that's where I live. So I have, uh, yeah, like, a, I don't know how to explain it. Like, it's an unusual looking building. It's like a Gothic Victorian clock tower in the middle of kind of um, uh, Hampstead, London, um, with, a, with an enormous kind of clock on it. I don't know how else to explain it. <laughs> I, I mean, I, looking at the artwork that I've seen you sharing on Instagram, um, I would say that it's uh, taking rave culture and taking elements of it and expressing it into uh, visual art, high art. Tell, how, how do you describe your art uh, and, 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 uh, your, and your process? I guess, I mean, you know, I've been DJing for nearly 30 years. Um, it's, you know, it's where my passion lies. And I think a few years ago, I, I started just to experiment with some art. I've been helping um, a sculptor that actually lives in the building. who's a kind of very established pop art sculptor called Clive Barker. And you know, he just encouraged me to start kind of doing some bits and pieces. And um, so I started doing some bronze casting and yeah, you, you know, I've just, I've made a few things, I guess I'm sort of slowly building up to, you know, kind of a, doing my own maybe standalone exhibition or something. Um, and I guess I just, you know, I draw on, on themes that appeal to me. Music is obviously an enormous part of my life. Certainly there was a piece I did recently, which, you know, definitely reflects, you know, my, my kind of love of music. Um, it, it's a tough one when it comes to sort of doing sculptures that I guess, you know, have a kind of music theme because there's a fine line between it looking like an award and, and looking like a piece of art. You know what I mean? If you choose the wrong kind of subject matter, but, um, yeah, look, it's not an exact science and I'm, and I'm very much kind of enjoying the process of doing it. I get a great kind of kick out of, um, you know, of doing the, the kind of the bronzes and, and some of the other bits I've done and, yeah, I'm I'm gonna gonna kind of keep doing it. You know, this 2020 is all about the year of the pivot, right? And I guess I'm I'm fully pivoting in a way from perhaps the DJing, which has been kind of suspended this year, to, to maybe doing more art. So uh, when you know we we start to find our way out of the pandemic, uh, do you think that your artistic output uh, on on the visual side is going to change? Not really. No, I think um, I think this has just been a time where I've, I've 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 allowed myself to do more because I've been less distracted. You know, certainly when you know in the UK in March when we kind of went under you know a lockdown, um, you know I couldn't DJ. Uh, I, I had more time. You know, my whole structure and everything was kind of you know like like as as everybody's were around the world. You know, sort of you know thrown out and um, yeah, that was just something. One of the things I I really kind of plowed into and got great enjoyment from. You know. What are you working on right now? Um, I've got uh, just a few little kind of bronze sculptures I'm doing. Um, yeah, I don't want to say too much because, you know, you just they kind of evolve as you go. I just completed a couple of pieces, which I guess were loosely based on kind of spot paintings, which are kind of fun. Um, and then, yeah, I've got a, I've got a few little bronze things I'm, I'm kind of working on. You know, some of these things take a long time. Like I made some some bronze lilies and it yeah it took me you know good nearly a year to kind of put together just with all the elements you know and obviously i'm not working on this nine to five monday to friday 
it's it's just sort of you know grabbing time here and there but it's it's just a super fun fun thing to do and i'd love to be able to sort of turn it into a, a living i guess well ali thank you so much for your time today and for talking to me about shambhala and your art yeah That was my conversation with DJ Ali B. To hear more from Ali B, revisit episode 8 of Rave Dad's Diary, where we talk about Shambhala Music Festival. Up next, we're going to hear from my creative friend, Sandro Petrillo, in Toronto. I know Sandro is obsessed with collecting bars of soap. So, when I saw that he had started making the stuff, I had to talk to him about it. start getting interested in soap making soap making well i mean i've i've been really interested in soap bar soap like like um solid bar soap for about 10 to 12 ish years kind of thing just over a, a decade interested in the in the form itself then i started collecting it and then i think about 6 or 7 years ago was when i first learned about making it myself. So um, when did you make the, the the change and decide to really get into the, the, the manufacturing of, of soap? Yeah, well, so it's over the years, you know, I, I live and work in Toronto um, for the past five years now, like five and a half kind of thing. I moved from Calgary. And now that I'm in Toronto, I've, I've been able to do a lot of sort of creative projects and hold on to a studio space um, through throughout the years. Uh, I th- I'd say about three or four years ago, I kind of had this spark again where I was like, okay, I'm going to make some soap. I'm going to, I'm going to just for my own practice or just for my own self, just kind of like dig back into that, that sort of itch. Um, and then I kind of just kept pushing it along, pushing it along. And I was making really great money with some of this installation stuff. So I was able to buy supplies. And although I had supplies, I didn't have time to get into it. Um, and so I basically had supplies just kind of like sitting, sitting around them. And then it would have been yeah, a couple, maybe 18 months or so ago, I made, I made a batch for myself, again, just to kind of like open back up to it. And then really, really, where really it made the sort of turn or the pivot was all throughout last year, like 2000, the working 2019, I worked on many, many, many projects and kind of like burnt myself out. Um, again, like very Toronto creative vibe where, yeah, just the, the, I had to say yes. I, there's so many things happening where it was amazing and positive, but again, you run out of energy. Where did I want to turn? I wanted to turn to my beloved Zen soap making. <laughs> and I promised myself, um, I promised myself that I was not going to take any jobs for the beginning of the year. It's, it's typically quite the slow period anyways. And so it's kind of a good time to do that. So I said, okay, January 1, 2020 to basically the beginning of March, I'm not going to take any sort of commission jobs. I'm only going to make soap. I'm going to use these supplies that I've sort of amassed. I'm going to make soap and I'm just going to like really, really figure it out and make a bunch of bars. I'm going to give them to friends and then kind of like see where I sit with it. So that happened. I made a bunch of batches of soap. I think I made like 12 batches for like, you know, something like 30 pounds of soap or something like that. And then 
I, I did, you know, I successfully zened out and I made soap. And then I flew to Vancouver to just spread the soaps and hang out with the homies over there for a couple of days. And then two days later, COVID announced that it was making its sort of, you know, long stay. <laughs> and I sort of came back from Vancouver, which was unbelievably beautiful. I got back to Toronto. It was kind of like dreary, weird. I was, you know, planning on getting into work again, you know, commercial work or building installations. I had some, some stuff lined up that, you know, one after another was getting canceled. And so I said, hey, I still have soap making materials. I'm just going to spend my time making soap and continuing making soap. As I did that, I really, really quickly fell in love with the possibility of, of turning it into an actual manufacturing thing or producing an actual product. And then started building out a brand and, and here we are. I'm, you know, I've sort of launched a, a small soap company. <laughs> so is this what you're doing with your time right now? Yeah, for the most part, this is what I'm doing. I'm, uh, my uh, partner also has a ice cream company and we're opening up an ice cream shop as well, which is kind of like a crazy manifestation out of this weird pandemic. Um, we're able to sort of that the ice cream business is, is going berserk as well. And so um, we're, built, we're building a brick and mortar. So I'm spending about half my time building that space and then the other half, um, yeah, laying the groundwork for what is, is going to be the, the soap company. Um, yeah, making batches and fulfilling orders and that kind of stuff. Soap and ice cream. Yeah. Both yeah. pandemic pandemic proof businesses, maybe. We'll see. I um Yeah, we'll see. Yeah. You know, I know you very well. We're good friends. We used to live together. I can clearly yeah. see the connection between your creativity and soap making. But maybe somebody out there is like, why are they talking about soap on a on a music program? I mean, how do you connect the two in your creative life? So I think I think when I yeah, soap for a long a long part of where soap was for me in, in my first er, early years of like collecting it and, and like kind of getting more intimate with what it was as a product was this sort of like meditative thought about what it what it represented. And you know, it's been nice because as I've built up this kind of company, I've I've had to sort of distill like what what it is that is important to me or what is that connection and it, it breaks down to this um sort of just like three word um sort of like description impermanent daily ritual um so soap is amazing because it's something that we collect as an object is very like you know small um accessible kind of object that is very very useful for our um like life on earth mm -hmm. But it it doesn't last. It is imp it's impermanent. Every single time you use soap, a layer of it disappears forever, forever until that bar of got soap is completely gone forever, only left as potential memory. Um, I think there's something really beautiful there that is something that we can attach to many things um, in our lives, many experiences. So for me, you know, musical experiences and that kind of stuff. When we're going to, um, you know, a venue or things, you know, like they're just, it is truly, truly impermanent. Like the most beautiful things kind of just like are fleeting. The ritual, ritualistic aspect as well is something that, you know, is a, a big part of where 
I've existed in music and rhythm and sort of building out these regular occurring um, experiences and sort of like collective of energy. Um, yeah, and daily is just, yeah, do, do the things you love daily, you know? And so we can, I think we can really, really connect there. So there's, there's this interesting tangent of, of where it goes, at least from a, a sort of theme. So, you know, I'm, I'm following you on socials and I've watched you uh, launch this soap company and I see our friends and peers going bonkers over the soap and uh, yeah. buying up all of your soap. Uh, outside of our group of friends, what's the what's the reception been like for your soap company? It's been really cool. Yeah, I mean, it's been it's been really interesting. I kind of, you know, the thing that I, I I'm a perfectionist too, and so there's many things that like I'll hold I'll hold back from launch and launch because I'm it's not ready. It's not ready. And so I did something really interesting here, where at least for myself, where I said, okay, you know what, I'm gonna I'm gonna give my graphic design, like a, I have a friend of mine that's like helping collaborate on the graphic design stuff and helping me tie some things off. And I was like, okay, well, I'm going to do, you know, of course I have certain expenses, but I'm going to introduce a very fixed expense and I'm going to give my graphic designer a retainer, a monthly retainer. And that's going to be what is going to essentially take me from casual to needing to pay bills. Um, and so what I did was I, I've had the site ready and like, or like ready and sitting for months, but it was just, password protected with, um, you know, just people could just go to it if they had a password. But now I turned it on. I was like, okay, I, I need to, I need to pay this bill. So I'm just going to see what happens. I'm going to turn it on and I'm just going to post some things on Instagram, you know, just kind of like soft launch this thing. And I did that in like, frick, immediately, immediately I had, you know, I, I looked at the sort of analytics and I was like, oh, wow, I sort of, not far, but, you know, surpassed that, that initial financial goal, which was a really good thing. Um, but then also I started getting hit up, um, about potential collaboration, you know, a couple of wholesale inquiries, and then, you know, people just genuinely, um, being interested in the soap. And I think where it's come into this really amazing place is that I'm getting now actual reviews of people using the soaps and, you know, people are really excited about it and they're really like, Oh, it helped this or, you know, and I, I'm not, I'm, I'm still very, I, I've been in soap for a long time, but I'm still, I'm very much learning as, as I will be for a long time. And so for people to kind of, you know, say, hey, this really worked for me and it was extremely quality and I will be back is amazing, amazing. So I've been yeah, really enjoying that. I'll be watching for uh, the, the subreddit um, on your soap. Oh yeah, please. Please, I need my my more Reddit <laughs> pals to hook me up with the links. <laughs> like everything else you do, uh, you know, the graphic design is is really beautiful, and it also makes me really uh, happy to hear you talking about analytics um, and uh, mm -hmm. brushing up on your on your on your business on your business side. Yeah. What, what's yeah. that been like? Actually, trying to balance um, you know cr creativity with uh, the realities of, you know, paying bills and, and running a business. Yeah. Well, I mean, it's been, it's been interesting. I've had, because of, again, my, my nature of the work that I do out here, there's a lot of like production and invoicing and sort of quoting and like sending of decks and all that kind of stuff. And so over the last couple of years, I've gotten okay at sort of developing costing and where things need to be in terms of like, you know, feasibility and all that sort of stuff. And so, it's been cool to kind of um, see how that 
plays out in terms of like building out a real product. Um, one thing that's been really awesome is that I think before I've always wanted to, like, as you know, Paul, like we've known each other for a long time. You probably still have things that I've printed and weird things. I've always wanted to like print things and make things and like that kind of stuff. And, you know, it's been amazing to do so. And I've, I've been able to do it in a punk way, like for the underground and like for a long time, whereas now, you know, I send, you know, I get an invoice for whatever it is, like $500 for printing. And I'm like, sick, like, this is amazing. Like I, I, this has to, this is something that I have to do. It's before I was like, I'm spending my money to make this happen. And it's kind of punk. Whereas now I'm like, I get to just spend money on like stickers and tape and, and <laughs> someone's going to print it. And like, so it's just been like amazing to kind of like, yeah, for sure. Do, do kind of all of like the, the more, you know, balancing the books and figuring out where money can be spent. But then once you figure that out, it becomes really interesting to see where, hey, now I can spend money kind of how other brands were spending money and having that sort of a part of my new economy is really, really excellent. And I can make decisions that are that are um, empowering of others. Like, you know, it's amazing to think of, hey, now I can like pay XYZ person to do this role for my company. And I never had that, I never had that ability before. And so it's really, really exciting think about okay now i can i can visit i can make this thing that is a bar of soap that everyone understands but then i can turn that that it's basically just like a vehicle to make cool stuff happen with the people that i love and so that's that's a it's really exciting it's really exciting i know your design work and i know that you're always putting easter eggs into your design work hidden codes um you know hidden hidden images um yeah how does are you how does how does that part of your creativity play into soap making, or can you say? Well, I I mean, let me just tell you, there are many points at which I can I can make these little magical combinations come come into reality with soap making. So it's quite the fun zone to play with. Yeah, I have all sorts of new senses to play with. So it's really great. Incredible. Yeah. Well, I'll be watching. Thank you very much for your time, Sandro, and uh, have, keep on having fun. It's good to see your face. Thanks, Paul. Good to chat. That was my conversation with Sandro Petrello about his pandemic pivot to making soap. His soap is gorgeous. Check it out on Instagram. S-S-S-O-A-P-S dot co. That's three S's O-A-P-S dot co on Instagram. Soaps. Listen now to a track by B Traits called Acid Landscape. 
This is on a new compilation by Bass Coast Festival called 12 Days Volume 4, and it's a Bandcamp exclusive compilation of 13 new tracks by Bass Coast Festival alumni, including CL, Anna Morgan, DJG, The Librarian, and more. Find out more on Bass Coast Festival's Bandcamp. All of the proceeds are going to the Merit Community Food Bank.
For the rest of today's show, you'll hear a quick catch-up I had with booking agent Grant Paley. Grant's a rave dad like me, and he's been working in live music for years, booking all genres, but specializing in electronic acts. In mid-2020, Grant left Pecan, his agency home of 12 years. I reached out to see how he's balancing the dad thing and supporting artists in new ways. It's a pretty loose chat. Enjoy. Tell me about Winnipeg, growing up in Winnipeg. It's legendary music yeah. city. Like, you know, what what was that like growing up? Did you did you take it for granted or did did you know that you were growing up in a place with a rich music scene? Um I don't know if I was fully aware of like the history of Winnipeg. Obviously, being around my father, there was a lot of musicians and a lot of music talk and a lot, just a lot of music. So I knew a lot about the history of like the community club scene in my dad's days. You know, all those bands played Neil Young, Guess Who. You know, my dad's bands were there. All those bands, all that community club scene. I mean, Winnipeg's always been it's an isolated place, you know, and especially back in the 60s, even more so than the 90s. But even in the 90s, you know, the internet was still pretty brand new when I was a teenager. So you didn't quite access bands as much as you do now, obviously, in media, you know, it was magazines, it was static images. And you have to imagine what that, you know, you'd get the skateboard magazine with the moves, right? Because that's, that's how you communicated that stuff, you know, and back in the day, everything was static. Um, who was your music influence? Like, was it primarily your dad or did you have siblings that fed you music? <laughs> well, I had two older brothers and one of them was like a straight up 80s banger, like all the 80s classic banging stuff like Molly Crew and Yo, bang your head. Um, but my father has always just been like a pop music guy, like whatever's popular. My dad just likes music. He's, he doesn't have any prejudice to any sort of music. He just loves it all. Um, you know, but early on when I was a kid there was a friend of mine this this guy named Brent who was just such a cooler older guy than us and he slid us a Jamiroquai record and sort of just changed our life we were like whoa you know fuck the alternative scenes the grunge scene rather you know we were just like what is this um and that was it you know we're just always into beats and I was really drawn into DJing and DJs I remember my first turntables were these SL1000s they were broadcast turntables I had to cut like a hole in a table and put these things in and put the arm in there's no pitch control but I just fucking did what I could on there this shitty PV mixer um what kind of music were you cool. playing on that setup <laughs> Oh man, probably trance, right? Like <laughs> the acid, acid and trance, you know, like in the mid, early, early nineties, like, you know, just the whole Detroit, Manchester. I mean, we didn't, but I didn't even know about those places yet. You know, like this music was coming from places that didn't really quite register with me. You know, I didn't really know what to DJ at that time. I didn't really know what I wanted to do with it. I was, it was just sort of a hobby and, and I just really loved doing it. I remember that I DJed at this uh, rave for the first time. That was pretty nerve-wracking, but you know, it was it was that first set with no one there. It's just all your friends, you know, just that that classic gig. But it was, you know, it wasn't until I moved to Kelowna when I was 18 and I saw this um DJ at uh oh, there was Gotches and some other club. Oh, what is it called again? I can't believe I forgot it. Anyways, I saw someone scratch for the first time, and then that's when the DMC thing really got hot and all that stuff. And of course, I was a Jamiroquai fan and I thought it was really cool the a band and a DJ. And it wasn't until like a number of years later in, in my university years where I just happened, I got asked by a band to play at this other, this, this uh, Jamaican bar named Brainware Bakery. I showed up, those guys had been fired. And what would become the band I'd play with for a number of years, Moses Mays, that's who showed up. 
and they're like, hey, you know, I kind of knew the drummer a little bit. I knew the sax kind of like the drummer and my dad played in a band and they grew up together and they played a band together. So we kind of knew, like we knew who each other were and they just said, hey, stick around and play with us. And that was it. You know, I started playing with those guys. I was like, whoa, you know, and they sounded like Jamiroquai. The idea of that band was Jamiroquai meets Herbie Hancock. That was what Moses Maze was. And I was like, oh my God, like this is, this is what, this is what I want to be. And, so what were you doing in the band? Scratching, scratching, sampling. You know, I was I was the front man. You know, I'd host the mic because we were an all instrumental group, and I became a I became a DJ front guy in a band. Which, you know, there was not there's really nothing else like that. I don't think there there is. There was Kid Koala. We met very few bands like us in those years. It was really tough, but we we played a lot in the West Coast circuit. They, you know, all the B, BC just loved us. You know. The, the hippie, the hippie crowd. It's crazy. We never played Shambhala. It just, it's just bananas. It bothers me so much. <laughs> that was going to be my next question. It's like, obviously, you played the Rock Pit at Shambhala. I played it, it with. So they finally offered Moses Mays uh, an offer, and we decided to take that summer off. We're just like, we need. We're, we're burnt out. We've been doing this for ten years. Pretty tired, and. Um, so we sent this new group called Libido that Libido that we had just formed as an electronic group. Just uh, Nathan uh, Gonzaga and uh, or, sorry, Mark Gonzaga and Nathan Reimer. Um, and so we went there and we played the rock band. It was the most. It was just the worst set of my life. I played the shittiest set of my life at Shambhala. <laughs> I mean, no one was there, thank God. Right, and just nobody was there. What year it was, was like this? Eleven or twelve. Oh, oh God, I found the flyer. I didn't know, like all the people that I work with now, I didn't even know then. I didn't know any of those people, but Delia Dublin was there and Matt the Alien was there and fuck, who else was on those bills? Maybe the Fort Knox Five guys. Like I'm thinking, I'm thinking it's 2003, 2004, maybe. I found the flyer one day and I couldn't believe it. I'm like, yo, these, like, I know all of these guys. I know all these women. I know all these people. I, I know these people now, but I didn't know them then. It was, it was such a trip to see that flyer. Yeah, you know, it's funny. Things keep on coming back to Shambhala and that, <laughs> that, that, that era, too. And trance. Trance comes up a lot yeah. in this series. <laughs> so, you know, how did you get into, into working as an, as an agent and working on that side of the music biz? Yeah, that was, I mean, I, I did all the stuff for my group. I was good at it. You know, the band let me thrive in that in that capacity agent manager label everything you know and and um so i did it for a number of years and i was basically the face i was based that was the face of the group you know that's you know in a lot of different ways um and you know when the band ended um you know pecking actually was my was my agency for quite a long time uh, I just saw the president and the vice president there, Julian and, and Todd, and I, you know, made a joke about them hiring me. And then next thing you know, they hired me. Uh, it was a joke. Like I just made a joke, and I said, "Sure, I'll come on in." And I, I did one more tour with the band, and I, and that was it. Um, played for a couple more years with the group, you know, just locally, and then became an agent at Peck End, and that was uh, that's how I ended up there, and that lasted twelve years, and and here I am now. So you represented and continue to work with electronic music artists um and a whole you know a spectrum of artists uh how did you develop your your roster uh during the time you were working at pecan 
I, they had me focusing a lot of folk and, you know, I booked like the Bear McNeils and Fred Penner came in the door and I started booking Fred, you know, I, I worked with what the roster was there. I mean, the thing about becoming an agent is, you know, you don't have a roster, you, you, you don't have anything that's your own and it's going to take a long time to, to de develop that. You know, I think there's a threshold and, you know, even something they talked to me about and it's totally true that about the year five is kind of when you're kind of decide if you're going to continue on trying to be an agent. Because you really have to build out a roster, you have to have a little bit of luck, you have to have a really good ear for for trends and music and I, I think you know I think agents are tastemakers I mean agents really are the kind of people that um, that find talent, you know, and develop talent it's it's probably the easiest method to develop talent and probably the least you don't have to invest much money it's just a lot of time. And there is money involved, you know, you got to travel, you got to network, you've got to do all those things and be around artists. Um, but that's sort of, you know, when I, when I got to Paquet, I focused on a lot of the stuff they were doing. And on the side, I put a lot of energy into the things I wanted to do. Um, Delhi to Dublin would be really early signing. Uh, Wasabi Collective was a band I worked with very early on. I already kind of knew from the circuit and really sort of, you know, played on the strengths of the circuit that I knew in the, in, in the jazz fest world. And of course, you know, there's a lot of people I didn't know, but, you know, I learned a whole, you know, a touring circuit in the theater and the performing arts center world and the, uh, in the um, you know, arts council world and all these little towns over the place and the showcases that happen all over Canada. And there's a lot of money there to, you know, develop talent and, you know, get <coughs> people on the road playing and they can make a decent amount of money. Um, and, you know, I did stuff like Matt Anderson, of course, I put Fred through there and I booked a lot of folk things like the Good Lovelies and, um, oh man, there's just so many bands that I've booked and so many types of different shows that I've booked. Um, and early on, they really wanted me to, they said, you know, we, we'd love you to try and develop a DJ roster. And of course, you know, if you looked at the Packet roster at that time, there's just no way DJs would sign with it. They would just be like, I don't <laughs> what, what are you talking about? And I just, my my sort of philosophy or, or when I was looking at a DJ act to sign, and I think it was just sort of my thing was like, hey, I'm gonna sign one, and I'm gonna concentrate on that one, and then hopefully more will come, you know, and, and hopefully I can start signing some more. And I identified the Funk Hunters. I'll be honest, on the Shambhala site, I was just checking out bands the year that it was going out. I was like a new agent. I didn't really know anybody at Shambhala at that point. And none of them would answer my email probably back then either. <laughs> you, if you're listening, you guys know you didn't answer it. Uh, but that's fine. They didn't know who I was. Why the hell would they answer my email? Um, but they're all really amazing folks. It's been such a great to, to get to know every single stage over there. But, you know, they... Uh, I found the Funk Hunters. I identified with what they were doing. You know, I saw a lot of my own taste in there, but I also saw an opportunity, and I say this to a lot of artists, I, I saw um, my skill set lending itself to them, you know, and, and, and what I knew to do and how to do it. And I also felt that I could maybe break some barriers with this guys because the kind of music that they were making could cross over into that folk world where, you know, the reality is there isn't a huge electronic festival circuit in this country. There just isn't. And it's kind of fucked if you think about it. <laughs> it's totally bizarre that there isn't a bigger infrastructure for it. It's such a massive genre at this point. Um, you know, so I, I identified those guys and we were, you know, we were able to break down some doors and barriers. And I've had those guys at several different folk festivals or several different festivals down the world. But, you know, Nick and Duncan are also insatiably um, hardworking, inventive. Um, um, they believe, they, they, 
persevere you know it's it's not fucking easy doing this it's really 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 hard it's it's hard it's hard work and um you know i've concentrated on those guys and we got up to a certain level and and that i think that helped build a notoriety within that community uh and then you know Mish sterling had stepped aside and and quite a bit of her roster had opened up and and fortunately a lot of them called me and um i feel you know i almost want to cry because i feel very grateful for that opportunity uh, you know, Andrea and Steve, Neon Steve and Matthew Alien. And right around that time, I also signed Dave. I signed Long Walk Short Doc. So, um, you know, it all sort of started coming together. You know, the, the, the result of putting a lot of work into one project um, really opened up doors for me, you know. And, and, and that's, I think, like a philosophy that, you know, I think you can use to sort of, you know, if you if you're if you can afford and you have the luxury of doing that, then take advantage of it. And that's what Paquin uh, allowed me to do. You know, on the side, I'm booking this stuff. I'm making the money. I'm paying my way. I'm making the company money. And then I make some time. I'm like carving out. And I'm like, I got to develop this. And 12 years later, you know, I've got a roster of 27 artists, and um, I'm really proud of that roster. It's 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 you know it's genre spanning, but I I think they all fit a spectrum of the things that I'm good at. I love. Um, and so many collaborations within them, like, you know, like I, I just, my, my community, my roster is literally they, so many collaborations. It's unbelievable. You know, the Charlie Tuna Funk Hunters thing is, is something that uh, is just amazing to think about, you know, and, and, and being able to connect those two and then seeing what they've done, you know, it's just like, ah, so that's, you know, that's sort of <laughs> the short, long story of uh, developing an electronic roster here in Canada. So in 2020, your time has come to an end with the agency. <laughs> and uh, yeah, you know, it's, 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 I appreciate you talking to me about it. It's, it's, it's difficult to, to talk about it. You know, I'm going through a big transition myself. So yep. uh, I, I, I feel that uh, distance from the people that I love working with and, you know, not being able to work on projects that I really want to work on. Well, things are like this in the music industry, but you're finding a path forward. And I know you're working on a really interesting new tack with artists like the Funk Hunters who are finding really unique ways of connecting with audiences and even reaching greater audiences through some of these digital means. Can you tell me about that? Yeah, of course. You know, I mean, it's it's been an um, interesting thing being an agent. I mean, you're on a, you're a bit on the sidelines with the stuff that goes online. You know, the role that you play is it can be a little bit non-existent in some instances because a lot of things have just gone right into the artist right there. They're doing all the work. You know, your skill set. But you know, so it's been challenging. I mean, um, you know, I know at the start of all this, of course, you know, I'm talking to every artist. I'm helping where I can, and, and you know, I'm, I'm getting by, and I'll get to the other side, right? It's it's just the reality of what's going on. But it's been really inspiring to be involved in conversations and see things how they've developed. I mean, you know, the electronic roster at the start of this, they they wouldn't, they're like, we can't charge people. Are you kidding me? Like the electronic, everyone's doing it for free. Everyone's on Twitch. Everyone's doing shit. Everyone's playing for free. No one's making money. You can't ask for stuff. You can't do sponsors. And it's been, the narrative's totally changed. You know, September hits, you know, the, all the DJs sort of figure out, oh, hey, I see how Twitch works. You know, it's a community, it's talking to people, it's interacting, it's going up often. It's what the gamers are doing, right? It's it's what the gamers, it's the gamers platform model. And um, they're finding a lot of success. You know, I see, I've been 
following Twitch almost every night, and I'm even hitting those turntables right there and spending a couple dad sets in the afternoons while I'm working, and I'm like, I don't want to work anymore. What's your handle? Um, what's my handle? The, uh, the Intergalactic Dude. <laughs> check you out. So yeah, man, come check it out. You know, actually on Sunday I'm playing a, a, a set online for my wife's birthday, so it's gonna just be all '90s and '80s bangers. That's all she wants, and some 2000s. So there'll be some Backstreet Boys for sure. <laughs> nice. But you know, it's fun. It's fun. You know, like I've been DJing and I, like just a reverse right back. It's like your first gigs. It's like my five best friends just all tuning in while they work and they're chatting. And I'm like, hey, this is fun. I'm, I'm DJing for my friends. And that's that's a lot of fun, actually. And it took like a, it was $125 for an audio um, interface and you're on the Internet. You know, that's that's how easy it was to do. And, and so I've been, I've been helping a lot of artists, you know, I've been learning a lot about how, what the Funk are doing, Funk Hunters or Jesu or Ski Tour. And I'm talking to them about it, you know, I mean, um, and learning from them because there's a lot of artists who aren't online yet, right? And I'm just sort of, so that's where I'm trying to also pass off that knowledge and encourage people, encourage people to get online. Um, it's, uh, you know, now the DJs have, have obviously found a rhythm and how to make money. And it's great to see uh, fans um, donating and doing subs. That's, that's showing that they they love their artists and they're dedicated to them and, and they want to support them through this. Um, you know, there's a lot of people, I don't know about you, but I don't spend any money anymore. You know, I'm, I'm, I buy, I buy, you know, <laughs> six beers a week, maybe a little bit of cannabis and some groceries. <laughs> that's it. What is this <laughs> cannabis you speak of? <laughs> so yeah it's um you know even with the bands it's it's just you know talking to people every day there's opportunities out there they're not as many as there used to be it's just that's just a fact you know that's but look it's you can figure this out you just gotta hustle you know and that's 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 what this game has always been about is a lot of hustling that's the that's the name of many games you know you just gotta keep working <clears throat> keep calling people and, and just stay in touch what's is something you don't miss about your life when you were really busy as an uh, agent? Uh, uh, I don't. I don't. What know. are you done with? What do you? What are you like? I'm gonna leave that part in the past. I I think I don't know. I I don't. I don't like. There's there's nothing that I think it's almost maybe made me a little bit more grateful for a lot of more things too as well, but. Um, maybe, you know, I think a lot of people will walk out of this with a work-life balance and going just like, wow, you know, I, I spent way too much time worrying about work. You know, like, you know, I'm, I'm picking my daughter up from school now and I, I sort of just go, well, fuck work, right? I mean, what am I going to do? I, I got to make dinner and I got to hang out with her. So who cares? Who cares? It's just not an option right now. The great part is, is, you know, I talk to other parents and I'm like, you know, you're going to get your after school care, you know, so you can have that extra two hours of work because it would be beneficial when I think about a business, right. Or running a business or booking shows or all the stuff to do. It is what it is right now. So I, I can't, I can't remember anything that I, I don't miss. You know, I, I, it, I, I think I was in a pretty good groove right before all this happened. <laughs> to be honest, it was pretty good. You know, my, my wife had just finished her school. She got a job, you know, we're heading into 2020. It was like, yeah, this is feeling good. And then, oh. and it's been a, it's been a roller coaster. It was very emotional. This first, first three, four months. I, I definitely cried. I definitely laughed. I definitely had some really dark days. It was pretty crazy. Um, you know, our whole industry had completely collapsed. It was completely fucked up. And, um, 
it still is. And, you know, more and more people are falling out of it every day. It's, uh, it's pretty crazy how long this has gone out on for. And um, boy, I can't wait for it to end. You know, it's good. <laughs> Do you think that the demand for the work of of and the role of, of of agents is going to get back to the level it was before the pandemic, or do you think that fundamentally oh, yeah. it's going to change? Um, I think people will be ready to come back. Absolutely, you know, I, I, there was I see a lot of reports where it's like seventy nine or eighty percent of music fans are like, yeah, I'm back. Like as soon as I can go back, I'm there. Um, why wouldn't you be? You know, when things are fine, things are fine. There's nothing to be scared of anymore, as far as I'm concerned. I mean, that's not for everybody. Um, but yeah, I, I think I think when the gate opens up, it's it's going to fucking be awesome. It's going to be mental. And we're going to be like, yes, yes. You know, you <laughs> can just feel the energy already. I mean, that's that's what people love is the energy, you know, being outside, watching a concert, you know, getting back to your fucking you know, campsite at 3am just like oh you know um all that fun stuff you're, you know all that fun stuff you're here for the the wine and the orgies in 2022 <laughs> oh my god that'd be that'd be amazing <laughs> but yeah I, I think people will be ready to come back I, and i hope you know it's it's gonna take a little while to to find the groove again you know there's a lot of venues closing down in this country there's a lot of bars are gone. Just a lot of everything's going to be gone, but it'll be, it'll come back. You know, we'll come back out of this, but um, you know, it's going to be a little different at first, but uh, I, I don't think, you know, once, once the regulations are lifted, I, I think we're back. I can't wait. Well, that's a really optimistic note to leave off on. And I really appreciate your time and uh, speaking with me today. Thank you. Yeah, man. Thanks for having me, brother. was my conversation with grant paley grant's working with the funk hunters right now take a listen back to episode five to hear the funk hunters origin story and other rave antics episode 10 of rave dad's diary is coming to a close rave dad's diary is written produced and hosted by me paul brooks thank you to my guests today the show is produced on treaty seven land at cjsw 90.9 fm in calgary Season 1 theme music is Orchestral Lab by Guido, released on Punch Drunk Records. The Rave Dad's Diary logo is by Homesick. Don't forget to check out the Rave Dad's Diary website, pbrooks.ca slash ravedadsdiary, to see photos and links from other shows. Follow the show on Instagram, at ravedadsdiary. Watch for a couple of reruns coming up, I'm taking some time off over the holidays, but I'll be back with two more episodes in the new year. Stay safe and party in place. I'll see you in 2021.